Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I've also been writing in a blog for going on three years now, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. Okay, today is September 3rd of 2021, and we're going to continue on in our look at this NC State case, the infractions case that the NCAA opened up a couple years ago after the basketball scandals and the criminal prosecutions that came out of New York in 2017-2018. And I laid a lot of foundation and talked about the context and the substance of those cases really for the last five episodes. So going back to episode 51, when I really started to talk about the changes in the rules for this independent accountability resolution process that was put into place in August of 2019 at the recommendation of the Commission on College Basketball. And the changes that were made in just last month at the August 3rd, 2021 NCAA Board of Governors meeting where the Division One Board of Directors essentially pulled the plug on the investigatory capacity of the complex case unit, which wasn't supposed to be an integral part of this new independent process. But now, because of that decision just last month, the independent resolution panel, the, the, the panel that actually hears the case and makes the decision in the case, has to accept the evidence and the fact-finding work of the NCAA's enforcement staff, the very staff that the Commission on College Basketball said should be completely taken out of the equation and the people in the Committee on Infractions in the old system should be taken out of the equation because they're just built-in conflicts of interest there. So you have the worst of both systems being cobbled together here in this NC State case in what I described in the last episode as a train wreck of due process. I mean, this is just uh, a textbook example of self-dealing and bad decision-making and bad faith in the execution of substantial regulatory authority. So in this episode, I'm going to start my journey through the five key documents that really define this case. And the first is the notice of allegations. And as I mentioned in the last episode, that's essentially the indictment. You know, so you had this criminal case and you had the criminal indictment on the regulatory side now and the NCAA prosecution of these cases. And this is not a cooperative effort, despite all this propaganda that the NCAA and the member institutions talk about and, oh, the spirit of cooperation and we want to do the right thing and we're all in this together. No, this is a prosecution and it is an adversary process. And the purpose of this process is to punish and to deter. It is not a teachable moment for anybody in the process. These are high stakes cases for all the wrong reasons. And the NCAA comes in with a police state mentality and a prosecutorial mentality. And the parties in these cases, the NCAA on the one hand and the member institutions on the other, are lawyering up and staffing up in a way that you would think the survival of the species depends on the outcome of this case. I mean, it's just shocking. And when I first came into this episode, I was thinking I would just go ahead and just walk through the notice of allegations. And that, I think, may miss the point here. 
I really want to keep the focus on some of these bigger picture issues. So I'm, I kind of called it audible as I was transitioning from the last episode to this episode. And rather just than just going through the facts, I'm going to do that. But the problem with that is that once you jump into this notice of allegations, you've jumped into an alternate reality. And that is a reality defined by the NCAA's construction of its role in college sports, its authority in college sports, its presumed status as the protector of everything that's good in college sports and amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model and all of those things that it has built its image around, but more importantly, its business model around because they are selling those virtues in the marketplace because they have value. They are a commodity and the member institutions think the same way at the decision-making level, at the administrative level, from the highest echelons of uh, university administration, starting in the university president's office and down through all the key decision makers into the athletics department. They are all selling the fraud of the integrity of college sports because it has market value. And the institutions are so embarrassed about what's really going on that they're afraid to speak the truth. That's what I want us to be thinking about as we're walking through this process. And when we jump in and you see the minutia that these people are fighting over the headiness of the issues that they are fighting over and then the aggregate costs to the system and in particular the personal costs to the athletes you can see the profound hypocrisy in this entire charade of amateurism and the integrity of college sports so i want to speak at that level before i get into the actual allegations and there are some ridiculous fact-based hair splitting and you split a hair and then you split it again and then you split it a third time. And some of these distinctions that the parties draw in this ridiculous process are distinctions where when you zoom out and then put them back into perspective, you just shake your head and say, what the hell are these people doing? And how can you justify having an entire industry built around that hair splitting? And that's exactly what the infractions and enforcement process is. That's exactly why all these big time universities have staffs of compliance officers with law degrees who use their legal training to decide whether a kid who got a free cheeseburger at a charity cookout violated NCAA rules because he received an impermissible benefit because one of the people working the grill at that charity fundraiser was a booster. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of stuff these people do. So to put this into perspective, I want to go to uh, a resource I've mentioned many times here in this podcast and it is an article that was written in 2011 by Taylor Branch, who is a well-known and well-respected civil rights historian. And he has North Carolina ties. He went to UNC and he wrote a trilogy on Martin Luther King Jr., which is really considered, I think, among historians to be the seminal work on MLK Jr. But he got involved in this athletes' rights discussion back with a, in 2011 with an article in the Atlantic. And let me see, I actually have the original copy. So I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the actual Atlantic magazine. This is from the October of 2011. And on the front, is the title of this article. It's called The Shame of College Sports. And it has a really provocative photo on the cover. It's, it looks to be uh, a college athlete. Can't tell if it's football or basketball, but he's bare-chested. He's African-American, and you can see his upper arm. His left 
upper arm and, and bicep. And on it is a stamp that says property of NCAA. And then you go to the article itself and it's a double page layout with the title, the Shema College Sports. And there's another photo here. And this looks like a, a football player to me, but he's also African-American and he is covered in sweat and his head is down and he has a very solemn look on his face. And those two images are very powerful. But Branch sets the tone for his article by talking about the work of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics in 2001 and a witness who appeared before the commission. And I'm going to talk about him in just a second. I'm actually going to read to you the opening of this article because it's powerful. And it also puts a lot of these issues that are relevant to the NC State case in context because it talks about the influence of these big time shoe and apparel companies. And I've talked a lot about the Knight Commission in this podcast back in my early episodes when I was talking about the structure of the NCAA. And I did a, actually two episodes on where are the presidents because the Knight Commission in its first and most influential report, the 1991 report, recommended presidential control and responsibility as the centerpiece of its uh, reform agenda. And the concern was that college sports are out of control and the gulf between the mission of the university and the commercialized, professionalized athletic product was growing and we needed to close that gap. And some of this thinking that really goes back to the Carnegie report from 1929 and the Knight Commission explicitly channels that 1929 Carnegie report. But out of that 1991 report came this fundamental model for the governance of intercollegiate athletics and the institutional control of intercollegiate athletics. This whole concept of institutional com control that the NCAA relies so much on in its enforcement and infractions process runs through this belief that university presidents are the beginning and the end of that responsibility. The governance structure now reflects that, and you had all these changes that were brought in really as the product of that central theory. But they have been an abject failure for the reasons that I'm going to talk about when we walk through this NC State case and also that Branch identified in, in 2011 and that have been apparent really since the beginning of the shoe company influence in big time college sports. I'm not going to go through the, the history of the Knight Commission. I talked about it at length in, I think it was episode three on the college presidents. And I talked about it in episodes two and episodes four. So, you know, those two, three, and four would be good episodes to listen to, to understand the history of this concept of presidential leadership and control that really underpins the governance of intercollegiate athletics at the responsibility level and the theoretical level. And that's still in place today. And it has been a miserable failure. So Branch uh, is talking about a this 2001 meeting with some witnesses that were providing input to the commission's work. And the Knight Commission issued five substantive reports. Its first one was in 1991, and that was really the, the key report. And then they had one in 92 and 93 that really just followed up on that first report and weren't that important substantively. Then in 2001, they issued what I think is really their second substantive report. They did a, a fifth report in 2010. But in 2001, they issued a report that is really distressing to me when I look at it now with the benefit of hindsight. It is an open temper tantrum because between 1991, when the Knight Commission recommended presidential control and doubling down on the commitment to academic integrity as the magic bullet to cure this perceived uh, corruption in 
college sports and this 2001 report, nothing had changed. The concerns that were raised in that 1991 report had only gotten worse and much worse. But instead of going back and looking at the theory, the Knight Commission just said, we just didn't pursue it earnestly enough. It's not a flaw in the theory. It's a flaw in our commitment to the theory. And the 2001 report was just a double down on the presidential leadership and control philosophy. But in that 2001 report, they were talking about some scandals that had occurred on the last 10 years. And most of them, I think, were football related scandals. And the way that they described those scandals and the people who were involved, and they paint with a broad brush and talk about these people and groups categorically, but there's just some cringeworthy language there that in uh, 2021 should be interpreted as having some race-based connotations. That's how I read it. I've read all five of those reports and I've read them more than once. And that 2001 report just jumps out. I think that the commission was so frustrated that things really hadn't changed in, in the last 10 years. And this 1991 report that got so much attention just didn't deliver the results. But, you know, that 2001 report is also important in the context of this NC State case because in 2000, Carol Cartwright, the woman who was running the chessboard on all these basketball-related cases that the NCAA was going to pursue, she joined the Knight Commission in 2000. And again, it was just not a great look. This was not the Knight Commission's finest hour, this 2001 report. And when I start diving a little bit deeper into the race issues, I'm going to talk about that report. And another thing that's important to point out with Cartwright's involvement with the Knight Commission is that she was the chair of the Knight Commission from January 1st of 2017 to December 31st of 2020. And her tenure as chair corresponds to the relevant time frame in these basketball-related cases and the NCAA's investigation. So she was chair of an advocacy group that has had a symbiotic relationship with the NCAA. And in that role, she is not a neutral person. And as we're going to discuss when I get to her referral letter, there were serious concerns about the fact that NCAA executives national office executives, high-level executives, were using the Knight Commission as a forum to speak publicly about these basketball-related cases, including the NC State case, and they were making statements that suggested an obvious prejudgment and an assumption of guilt. And that happened through an organization that Carol Cartwright was the president of. And then she's also serving as the primary mover and shaker for the Committee on Infractions in managing the chessboard in these basketball-related cases and it just stinks. It just stinks. And I'll get into all that when I get to Cartwright's referral letter, but that really ties into some other important themes that I'll address on the backside of all of this in terms of the circular amplification and the small group of people over really over decades now that have been recycled and they appear in different contexts, but you have the same people again and again and again with the same belief system over and over again, insinuating themselves in the decision-making at the highest levels of college sports. But getting back to this 2001 report, which reflects the very issues and, and concerns that uh, I'm 
talking about in the NCAA enforcement and infractions process. But the Knight Commission has a view of the world that is very similar to the NCAA view of the world. And that 2001 report was really just a situation where the frustration of the commission overwhelmed their judgment. And it just reads now like a a temper tantrum that has some distressing features to it. But that attitude, that attitude of self-righteousness, that attitude of these true believers thinking that they are striking a blow for the integrity of college sports, for the integrity of higher education, for the integrity of American institutions, that is so deeply embedded into the climate and culture of the institutional interests that it is very difficult to respond to. It's very difficult to identify, isolate, and explain. And that's been one of the challenges in this podcast because people just automatically, reflexively, instinctively default in a very deferential way to these narratives that have been propagandized for decades. And one of the reasons that branches article in 2011 was so powerful was that he did a really good job of penetrating that value system and exposing some of the weaknesses in it in a way that made people look. And it was provocative. And Branch went on the lecture circuit after that. And he did a documentary and he he may have actually written a book. I, I have not read the book. I saw the documentary. And I've listened to some of the speeches that Branch has given. And Branch testified in that 2014 Senate hearing in the Commerce Committee that Jay Rockefeller chaired. And that was really a beatdown of the NCAA. And I talked about that in some detail in my Pay for Play series and that the importance of the year 2014. That was a hearing where Mark Emmert was carrying the bags of the Power Five and laying out an agenda for change. We need to change for the benefit of student athletes. But that whole campaign was really just about doing the bidding of the Power Five. But Taylor Branch testified at that hearing and he gave some powerful testimony. So just want to identify a couple of the people here who were involved so you know who they are. The Knight Commission was founded in 1989 and William Friday, the former president of the UNC system, he's a North Carolina guy too, and he's very well respected. And he was a great leader in public education in, in North Carolina. But he and a gentleman named Theodore Hesburgh, who was the president of Notre Dame, they came together to launch the Knight Commission and spearhead its work heading into this 1991 report. Dr. Friday was the primary spokesperson for the commission, and he was still involved in 2001. And one of the witnesses they heard from was a a guy named Sonny Vaccaro. And Vaccaro is a very colorful guy. He was involved in the earliest iterations of the growth of the shoe company influence in big time athletics. And it really started on the basketball side. And again, a good resource for that is this book, Soul Influence from 2000 by Dan Wetzel. He traces the whole thing from Chuck Taylor to Sonny Vaccaro and, and George Ravel. If you want to know who Chuck Taylor was about the shoes, the Converse shoes that have made a comeback as 
as a cool uh, retro shoe, but I'll leave you in suspense. But Wetzel talks about Chuck Taylor, and he was the pioneer in this whole sports market. But heading into the new millennium, these shoe companies were pretty well embedded into at the institutional level. And that's so important at the institutional level with the athletics departments and the universities. And Vaccaro was a big part of the evolution of that. And he made a bunch of money. <laughs> and he was, let's see, I'm not even sure if he was an Adidas or a Nike guy, but the main battle over the years has been between Adidas and Nike. Converse has been in the game and then Reebok and then Under Armour came on later. But for the most part, these wars were, were played out between Adidas and Nike. And then after decades of working in that business, Vaccaro dropped out and now professes to be an athlete advocate. But here's how Branch begins the article. I'm not hiding, Sonny Vaccaro told a closed hearing at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. in 2001. We want to put our materials on the bodies of your athletes, and the best way to do that is to buy your school or buy your coach. Vaccaro's audience, the members of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, bristled. These were eminent reformers, among them the president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, two former heads of the U.S. Olympic Committee, and several university presidents and chancellors. The Knight Foundation, a nonprofit that takes an interest in college athletics as part of its concern with civic life, had tasked them with saving college sports from runaway co commercialism as embodied by the likes of Vaccaro, who, since signing his pioneering shoe contract with Michael Jordan in 1984, had built sponsorship empire successfully at Nike, Adidas, and Reebok. Not all the members could hide their scorn for the quote-unquote sneaker pimp of schoolyard hustle who boasted of writing checks for millions to everybody in higher education. Why, asked Bryce Jordan, the president emeritus of Penn State, should a university be an advertising medium for your industry? Vaccaro did not blink. They shouldn't, sir, he replied. You sold your souls and you're going to continue selling them. You can be very moral and righteous in asking me that question, sir, Vaccaro added with irrepressible good cheer. But there's not one of you in this room that's going to turn down any of our money. Brent goes on and transitions into uh, Dr. Friday's reaction. William Friday, a former president of North Carolina's university system, still winces at the memory. Boy, the silence that fell in that room, he recalled recently. I will never forget it. Friday, who founded and co-chaired two of the three Knight Foundation sports initiatives over the last 20 years, called Vaccaro the worst of all the witnesses ever to come before the panel. No kidding. And, and then Branch goes on to say, but what Vaccaro said in 2001 was true then, and it's true now. Corporations offer money so they can profit from the glory of college athletes and the universities grab it. And then he goes on to talk about some of the history of how universities have gotten more and more involved. And then a branch comes to really the heart of the issue here. And remember, this is in 2011. So all these things that have happened in the last 12 months that have fundamentally 
changed the face of college sports didn't exist. And we're in any reality in a world where the NCAA is having its way in college sports and the universities that are in bed with the NCAA and making ridiculous money from their athletics departments. And then Branch talks a little bit about how the intersection of money and this pretense of purity has resulted in quote unquote scandals. And that's something that the Knight Foundation focused on this perception that there's just a scandal ridden college sports landscape. And without really looking at why that's the case and challenging some of the basic assumptions about amateurism and they're living in this fairy tale world. And then they classify any real or perceived breach of that fairy tale ideal as scandal and corruption and the end of the integrity of higher education as we know it. And, and that is part of the problem here. And Branch, I think, gets to that in this article. After talking about some of the scandals, Branch says, the list of scandals goes on with each revelation. There is much wringing of hands. Critics scold schools for breaking faith with their educational mission and for failing to enforce the sanctity of quote-unquote amateurism. Sports writers denounce the NCAA for both tyranny and impotence in its quest to quote-unquote clean up college sports. Observers on all sides express jumbled emotions about youth and innocence, venting against professional mores and greedy amateurs. And, and then Branch says this, and I think this is really one of the most compelling portions of this entire article. So he says, for all the outrage, the real scandal is not that students are getting illegally paid or recruited. It's that two of the noble principles on which the NCAA justifies its existence, and quote unquote amateur quote-unquote, the student-athlete, are cynical hoaxes, legalistic confections propagated by the university so they can exploit the skills and fame of young athletes. Then Branch says, the tragedy at the heart of college sports is not that some college athletes are getting paid, but that more of them are not. And in those passages, Branch really hits on an important theme that is now relevant in this NC State case. And that is that in the NCAA's view of the world and their construction of reality and in the minds of people like Dr. Friday and Miles Brand and Mark Emmert and Carol Cartwright, there is a binary approach to intercollegiate athletics in which only two type of people exist and only two type of forces exist. And those are the bad actors and then the principal actors, the good actors. And it's based on some primal instincts to wrestle with the inherent goodness and badness in the human spirit. And you can't know light unless there's darkness and you can't know honor without dishonor and you can't know right without wrong. And that thinking that bad actor thinking that has expressed itself from the earliest iterations of big time college sports. And again, this thinking goes back to the early 20th century at about the time the NCAA was formed and then it was 
documented in that 1929 Carnegie report and then brought forward and into the Walter Byers years and the self-righteous view of the good actor, bad actor uh, view of the world and the enforcement and infractions process and all this self-righteous chest pounding. And that was evidenced quite clearly in the Knight Commission's work and the Knight Commission still speaking that language. And that was their fundamental orientation. So when I talk about Carol Cartwright and her history and explain and contextualize the tone of that referral letter, which is just really uh, a difficult read because it is so bad. It is so fundamentally inconsistent with some of the very principles she claims to hold and and that the interests she represents claim to hold. But you have to look at the way she sees the world. If you don't understand how these people see the world, you can't understand why the system is the way it is today. And so what Branch just tapped into was this false idealization of values that don't exist, and I would argue never existed in college sports. And that goes back to some of the wishful thinking in the Carnegie report. And one of the things that the United States Supreme Court did in its Austin decision on uh, June 21st, 2021, and remember that was a unanimous decision, but in the way that they framed the case and the way that they characterized the facts, and that's so important. You can tell a lot about what a court's thinking and what their behind the scenes philosophical gut reaction to a case is by the way that they frame the facts. And the U.S. Supreme Court could have taken the William Friday view or the Carol Cartwright view or the Miles Brand view or the Knight Commission view and painted this rosy picture about the value of the integrity of college sports and the integrity of amateurism and the integrity of the student athlete and on and on and on. They didn't do that. They could have, but they didn't. Instead, they created a factual context that was based on the lie of amateurism because they went back historically and brought through this period from the early 20th century really up until the television era. And I talk about that in my early pay-for-play episodes. I did an episode on that period between the beginning of the 20th century and then really up to World War II. But, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court was focusing on this principle of amateurism that was invoked in the early part of the 20th century as this noble ideal, but then they chronicled all the ways that it was violated and that it was never taken seriously. So this myth that there is some pristine amateur ideal that we can reach back to historically is a fraud. It never existed and it doesn't exist today. And that is the fatal flaw in the business model and all this self-righteousness and this indefensible facade that this system has spent billions of dollars to defend, billions of dollars to defend. I talked about in my last episode that the cost of maintaining that facade in the context of these basketball-related cases could get into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And some people hearing that may say, what's this guy talking about? You have to remember this, that in just the O'Bannon case, which was a name, image, and likeness case, a thing that the NCAA now permits, but the NCAA didn't permit it in 2009. And they fought tooth and nail until public perception turned on them in 2019. And throughout that decade, The NCAA spent $140 million in legal fees and settlements to avoid paying a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation. And all these amateurism-based arguments, all this idealistic BS that you hear in the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics was the language that they were speaking to federal courts up until the Austin decision, the Supreme Court decision. 
And to this day, after the Austin decision, the NCAA has not come to terms with it. They have not stated publicly that they recognize that they got their butts kicked and that the way that they got their butts kicked exposed amateurism as a fraud. And that's essentially what happened in that case. Even though that ruling was limited to the, the injunction at issue there, the takeaway, and it was coming from a unanimous court, is that this amateur thing is done. But in terms of the cost to the system in defending these frauds, in the Austin case alone, the NCAA spent at least $300 million. And that's a conservative estimate. We know that the NCAA spent about $200 million to settle out the damages component of the case. And then we know that the plaintiff's attorneys were awarded about $45 million at the end of the case. And the NCAA wasn't working for free. Wilmer Harrell wasn't working for free. Neither were Skadden Arps or Wilkinson Steckloff. <laughs> they're getting paid. And I'm guessing they're getting paid a heck of a lot more than the plaintiff's attorneys got paid. So you're north of three hundred million dollars. And every penny of that almost half a billion dollars in O'Bannon and Austin alone, just two lawsuits, were pushing half a billion dollars for the NCAA to defend what is now unanimously viewed by the United States Supreme Court as a failing theory. But nobody's asking where that half a billion dollars came from. Well, let me tell you where it came from. It came from revenue generated in the $20 billion March Madness contract the NCAA has had with CBS since, I don't know, 1988. And that money is generated disproportionately by elite Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-Americans. And again, nobody's talking about it on those terms. And that just goes to show you the power of the NCAA. And even in its weakened state, people aren't coming in for the kill, just saying, it's time to put this institution out of its misery. We can't permit this in a free society based on principles of equity and justice and fairness and economic liberty. We just can't permit this. And, you know, it's taken a half a billion dollars in litigation and a unanimous Supreme Court decision just to change the narrative. Because this dynamic that Branch described in 2011, that's still the dynamic that exists behind the scenes in the NCAA. And that is a climate and culture issue. And this Robert Gates Constitutional Committee doesn't change that one iota because the same people who created the problem are sitting on that committee. And when you look at the composition of that committee, it's just same song, new verse. And we're going to just kind of reshuffle the deck and stir the drink again. And it's going to be the same 52 cards and the same liquid in the drink. And I guess I, I should say one other thing. A lot of people who are indoctrinated into the NCAA view of the world, and it's a powerful indoctrination. And I have flirted with that myself. It's a very easy shortcut to take when the NCAA comes out and says, these are the bad actors. These are the people that we need to protect ourselves from. And they're pointing to the Orlando Earlies and the Mark Gottfrieds and these Adidas shadow actors, but they're really not. Actually, Gondo's not a shadow actor. So the uh, shoe company's doing exactly what the institutions expect them to do, even if that's not part of the contract. And I doubt that's written into the contract. They're going to be steering high value athletes to the university, but that's exactly what they're doing. That's an important component of what they offer in their services to these universities that are getting up to tens of millions of dollars a year for that shoe company affiliation. And that's what Sonny Vaccaro was talking about when he said, you're going to take the money. You can criticize me and you can 
get into all your moral preening and all that stuff. But when I cut the check, you're going to take it, you're going to cash it. But you can point to all those people in the system and people feel that way about Sonny Vaccaro and always have. And you can use them to reinforce your black hat, white hat view of the world. But when you strip away all the propaganda, you strip away all the NCAA amateurism-based lies and the marketing around those lies, what the NCAA infractions and enforcement process is most often doing is criminalizing the behavior. And this is a criminalization because these people on the backside of an infractions and enforcement proceeding, if they are found, quote unquote, guilty and they're deemed ineligible or a uh, school gets hit with heavy penalties or a coach gets a show cause order or whatever the penalty is, those people are viewed as having committed a crime. When in fact, when in fact, they're engaging in conduct that in any other context in the United States of America would not only be entirely appropriate, but desirable. Dennis Smith Jr. has an absolute right as an American to get from the market what his talents are worth. And I'll tell you this, they were worth a hell of a lot more than $40,000. So, and I felt this way, you know, this is going back to my earliest affiliations with the athletes' rights movement. And that goes back to the mid uh, 1980s in my work with Dick DiVenzio. And I talked about that in, in the first episode. But I have thought about this in a much, much different way over the course of my adult life. And one of the things I think that's so important about this Austin decision is that it really is a substantial blow to that narrative that is so powerful that if a kid gets a t-shirt or a cheeseburger, he's a bad actor. And the coach who cuts corners and funnels some money to a kid's family, he's a bad actor. He's a criminal. He's Furman, he's on the dark side of the earth and we don't want to have anything to do with him. Okay. In fact, in this NC State case, in this cast of characters I'm going to get into in a minute when I discuss the notice of allegations, it sounds so horrible and so official, but swirling around this case are more idiots. A lot of the, a lot of the reasons that sometimes these cases do make you say, okay, these guys deserved it, even though what they're doing shouldn't be as big a deal as the NCAA makes it. But you see some really stupid stuff. You see some really stupid people doing stupid stuff. And in these cases, you don't have to dig too deep to start to identify who those people are. But there's this cast of characters that have been on the radar screen for a long time. And they involve an agent, a guy named Andy Miller, who has a company, an athlete agent company. And this Gaznola guy, this star witness for the prosecution, who's just a train wreck on the AAU circuit. But he's an Adidas guy and he's doing a Adidas is bidding and the NCAA saying his conduct is attributable to NC State. They weren't saying that in the criminal case because they were all uh, in the on the happy victim team. But now that the NCAA is trying to screw NC State, Gasnola is uh, you know part of their team and they own his conduct. But all these guys were in this company that had just done some sketchy things by NCAA standards, okay? And NC State did what schools are allowed to do, and they sent to Miller and to people who were affiliated with him a quote-unquote disassociation letter. It's the NCAA equivalent of an Amish shunning. So they send, they send Miller and his company a disassociation letter. And that, I guess, is some immunity in case those guys kind of work their way back into the NC State market somehow. But you're not going to see NC State issuing a disassociation letter to Adidas. 
And these people, Jim Gatto is an Adidas employee. They have a $6 million a year contract with Adidas. It's the Adidas folks who created this mess in large part and were participants in this mess. But you don't see NC State disassociating from Adidas, and you're not going to see Duke disassociating from Nike or UCLA disassociating from Under Armour if any of the actors in those shoe companies get the school in trouble by NCAA standards. It's not going to happen. So you have this very kind of selective, cherry-picked self-righteousness on issues where the universities can preen and they can talk about how righteous they are when sitting right next to that or hypocrisies directly inconsistent with their preening that have far more consequence. And that's exactly what's happening in this NC State case. But I, I've never lost sleep when I read a news story that X, Y, or Z recruit allegedly got paid X, Y, or Z money or got some tangible thing or some extra benefit by NCAA standards. When I find out what that benefit is, what the allegation is, my first response is usually, that's all. I mean, you sold this kid out for that. But when you look at what happened in this NC State case, there's actually a plausible explanation for the, the amount of the money that supposedly made it to Dennis Smith's father. And it correlates to the down payment on a house that he purchased. And I think a, a lot of times people don't understand that the people involved in these transactions aren't thinking millions and millions of dollars in the short term, in the present tense. They're looking at what their immediate needs are. And a lot of these transactions are driven by those short term needs and the pressure points that all these shoe companies and assistant coaches are, are well familiar with. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get into the NC State's response, because they talk uh, about the, the uh, weakness of the paper trail and where the money uh, came from and who it was intended for and how it traveled and are asking themselves, why would they sell a kid out for, for amounts that really seem trivial compared to their true market value and their potential market value at the next level? I think you lose sight of what motivates those transactions. And that's something that's not a convenient topic because in most cases, the people swirling around these athletes are like the athletes, African-American. Many come from circumstances, financial circumstances that require them to think in the short term. And that's just the reality of that market. And so the people acting in that market understand all those dynamics and they play to them. But, you know, when I heard uh, $40,000 with Dennis Smith, I just kind of rolled my eyes and thought, this kid's not going to see a penny of that money. And may don't even know about the payment. This is for somebody swirling around him. And again, because NC State's contesting all these facts, we don't know. But NCAA narrative is that this $40,000 was earmarked really for Smith's father. And, you know, who knows? But let me just go through this notice of allegations. And as I'm going through it, I just want to, to challenge you to try to keep in mind that at the big picture level, how ridiculous and petty this process is, particularly weighed against the billions of dollars that have been bled from the system to defend the quote unquote prosecution of this kind of case. And the really profound lack of proportionality between the actual transactions and then the amount of money that is that's spent to pursue the bad actors in these transactions. You just it's, it's almost impossible to, to put into words. So I, that's why I think it's important to put some context on this. 
and not get sucked into the NCAA's construction of reality in this alternate universe that they operate in. And then the other thing that I want to keep in mind as we're starting our tour through these documents is the timing, the sequence of events. So I, I talked about this in the last episode when I did my timeline, but this notice of allegation came out on July 9th of 2019. And I think it's important to look at what was happening in the timeline, both just before and just after this July 9th, 2019 date. So you had the NCAA and Carol Cartwright starting these investigations back in September of 2018. And that is after NC State is named for the first time in the superseding indictment that came out in April of 2018 after the Commission on College Basketball releases its report and issues its recommendations on enforcement and infractions. And a month after the NCAA puts into place these recommendations that give the NCAA these extraordinary powers, the importation power, the non-cooperation powers, and the expansion of the review of the evidence to include circumstantial evidence, all these powerful tools that the NCAA wound up relying upon in formulating its notice of allegations in the NC State case. So that investigation starting in September of 2018 was supposed to be, quote unquote, a cooperative venture between NC State and the NCAA. It turned out to be anything but that. So you then have this notice of allegations coming out in July of 2019. So this is just 10 months after the NCAA started looking into this and NC State was talking to the NCAA and this cooperative effort to reach a rational conclusion to, to NC State's involvement. And the other thing that's important about this July 9th, 2019 date it is it is just a month later in August of 2019 that the NCAA puts into place the infrastructure for this independent review process that the Commission on College Basketball recommended. So as of August of 2019, just a month after this notice of allegation goes out, you have the ability, if you're the NCAA, if you're Carol Cartwright, you have the ability at that point to change tracks on this case and put it into the independent accountability review process because of the significance of the case and also because it is tracking towards uh, addressing some of these issues of first impression but Carol Cartwright doesn't do that and when you we're going when we go forward to her referral letter in February of 2020 she's saying this is the perfect case for the independent accountability resolution process. If there ever was a case, this is it. Well, apparently she wasn't thinking that back in July and August of 2019 because she ran this entire case through the old Committee on Infractions and all of its shortcomings and all of its conflicts of interest and all the things that the Commission on College Basketball said were a real problem with that process. So you have to ask yourself, as we're moving through this timeline, why didn't Carol Cartwright and the NCAA in August of 2019 put the brakes on temporarily and say, okay, this is the case. This is why we have this process. This is what the Commission on College Basketball re recommended. We're shifting it over right now. And the rest of this case is going to be run through this process that was specifically designed to handle this kind of case. She didn't do that. Why? All right, so let's talk a little bit now about this July 9th, 2019 notice of allegations. So here we go. We'll jump in to the NCAA's pile of crap, and we'll just put on our crap suits and protect ourselves from it as best we can. And so what I'm going to do is talk about these allegations generally, 
how the NCAA framed them. And then I'm going to focus on this $40,000 payment because that's really the, the key allegation here. But the way that the NCAA puts together these notice of allegations, they first process the allegations based on the severity of the allegation. And there are three levels with level one being the highest level and the one with the potentially worst consequences. And those go to questions of institutional control. And once you get into alleged violations that invoke the principle of institutional control, that makes member institutions nervous because then you're looking at potentially draconian penalties. And I'll just say from an organizational standpoint, this thing's a train wreck. It's very difficult to figure out how the NCAAs categorize these things. So I think what I'm going to do is just speak in terms of the most serious allegations. I believe the NCAA intends to pursue these as level one allegations, but if this is the way that the, this is standard operating procedure for the way that they present this information from the enforcement staff and then through the committee on infractions, this is, is sorely lacking in the clarity department and the organization department. And again, we don't know how many NCAA employees were involved in this? We don't know how much it costs, what the actual cost to produce this uh, notice of allegations was. And maybe I'll try to take a stab at estimating that based on what we can conclude or infer from the process. But we have these allegations and I'll just read how the NCAA summarizes the most severe allegations and generally captures the, the scope of the violations. They say... It is alleged that from September 2014 through March of 2017, Orlando Early, then men's basketball assistant coach and lead recruiter, violated the NCAA principles of ethical conduct when he and members of the men's basketball staff committed multiple recruiting violations that provided extra benefits during the recruitment and subsequent enrollment of then men's basketball prospective student athlete, Dennis Smith Jr. Early and the men's basketball staff members arranged for and or provided Smith and individuals associated with him approximately 46,700 in impermissible inducements and benefits. As a result, Smith competed in 32 contests and received actual and necessary expenses while ineligible. And then they list, let's see, one, two, three, four, five specific types of impermissible benefits that form the core of the case. And I'm going to wind up focusing just on this $40,000 payment because that was the subject of the criminal case. And, and those were the facts really that the NCAA was drawing on and borrowing through this importation provision and bringing into the regulatory process and the enforcement and infractions process. So the, the five separate allocations are one, in September of 2014, the then director of basketball operations arranged for approximately $80 in impermissible recruiting inducements in the form of special parking in the loading dock of the PNC arena for Smith and three other prospects to use during their unofficial visits to attend the institution's September 27, 2014 football contest versus Florida State University. Okay, so $80 in impermissible recruiting inducements in the form of special parking in the loading dock. 
<laughs> the loading dock. That's that's high class parking right there. That eighty bucks, boy. And I just again, I just have to to mention this Baylor case because that was the sexual assault case that was really awful. And the NCAA spent five years investigating that case and trying to figure out a way to hold Baylor responsible. And in the final analysis, they said they had no jurisdiction. Why did they have no jurisdiction? Because there's no provision in the NCAA Division I manual, the actual legislation in that manual, that would have allowed them to address the conduct at Baylor. But there are pages and pages and pages and pages of active legislation that make clear that an $80 parking pass at the loading dock of a basketball arena is a serious offense. This is a hanging offense, and we're going to take this seriously. I mean, really, this is the kind of crap that the NCAA is spending its time on. All right, the second allegation. On September 29th, 2014, the, the then head men's basketball coach allowed a former colleague who was not a countable coach or certified to recruit off campus to accompany him in an evaluation of Smith at an off-campus recruiting event at the John D. Fuller Recreational Center in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So what does that mean? What does that really mean? It means that Mark Gottfried sat together with a former coach and a friend of his to watch Smith and evaluate him at an off-campus recruiting event. And what they don't say here is that that friend is a guy named Jim Herrick, who the NCAA has labeled as a bad actor, and he did some stupid stuff, and his son did some stupid stuff, and he's bounced around, and he was at UCLA, and then he was at, at uh, University of Georgia, and then he got in some trouble, and the NCAA gave a show cause order. But Herrick is a bad actor, and so Godfrey just breathing the same air in the same room in the same gym with Jim Herrick is that. that boy, that's uh, hanging a fence right there. But that's an NCAA violation, I guess. And the other thing about the ridiculousness of that allegation is that in 2014, Mark Gottfried knew that Dennis Smith was a pretty good player. They didn't need to evaluate him to decide whether they wanted him. Everybody wanted him. So my guess is that Gottfried and Herrick are just sitting in the gym shooting the bull and talking about old times and maybe talking about their golf game. But I don't think Herrick was giving Gottfried any information that wasn't available to the entire basketball universe. And that is that Dennis Smith Jr. is a can't-miss prospect. And then the third thing, and this is really the heart of the case against NC State. In November of 2015, early, this assistant coach violated the NCAA's principles of ethical conduct when he knowingly arranged for and or provided an impermissible recruiting inducement of $40,000 to an individual associated with Smith, specifically early arranged for T.J. Gasnola, a representative of the institution's athletic interests and then outside consultant for Adidas, which was also a representative of the institution's athletics interests to provide early with $40,000 in cash to ensure Smith's commitment to the institution. Early informed Gasnola 
that he intended to provide the money to Sean Farmer. And Sean Farmer was really Dennis Smith Jr.'s personal trainer, personal coach. And a lot of these guys have folks like that. This guy was the gatekeeper for access to Smith Jr. And so Farmer's a a character in this whole saga. But anyway, so the money was going to go to Farmer, an individual responsible for teaching or directing an activity in which a prospective student-athlete is involved, and the trainer of that student-athlete, Smith, who would then provide money to the Smith family. So the possession, the chain of custody, <laughs> this 40000 was Gasnola to Early, Early to Farmer, Farmer to Smith's father. They say the Smith family, but I think it was really Smith's father who was handling these discussions. And then, so that's the substantive allegation on this $40,000. Then the fourth allegation, and again, you just shake your head here. On 26 occasions between January 16 through March 2017, early that assistant coach violated the principle of ethical conduct when he knowingly provided approximately $2,119 in impermissible recruiting entertainment benefits in the form of 44 complimentary admissions on the men's basketball office pass list to Farmer Smith Jr.'s coach, his individual coach. And then the fifth allegation was, is pretty much the same thing. Only this time there were 106 impermissible complimentary admissions worth about $4,500. Free tickets to, to games, particularly at a place like the PNC arena where NC state plays a lot of its games, but that's a big, a massive arena and holds professional hockey games and it's a big time, but at an arena that size. There are so many seats. These complimentary admissions are meaningless. They mean nothing. And these tickets fly like candy at a Christmas parade to all kinds of people. And all kinds of people (laughs) whose affiliations with the school are at least as suspect as uh, Sean Farmers is with Dennis Smith Jr. and the recruitment of Dennis Smith Jr. So I would love to see uh, those complimentary pass lists. Wouldn't that be interesting? For the whole season. So let's take a look at who was getting free tickets to these games. And uh, a couple of things I want to observe here, actually three things I want to observe. And the first relates to that most serious allegation on the $40,000 payment, but it is crucial to the NCAA's theory of the case that they tie NC State to Gasnola and that they can credibly pitch Gasnola as an Adidas representative, an official Adidas representative. Otherwise, they have no way to hold NC State accountable for Gasnola's participation in the movement of that $40,000. And Again, Gasnola's connection to Adidas has always been a little bit sketchy. He's not an employee, but he's acting as a, I guess, a representative because he has an Adidas-sponsored AAU team, and he's moving players and moving money ostensibly on behalf of uh, Adidas kids to Adidas universities. But that's not a slam dunk here because of the nature of Gasnola's kind of shadowy involvement in in the whole business model of grassroots basketball. But they drop a footnote and let's see, it says, Adidas is a corporate entity which was known by members of the institution's men's basketball staff and athletics department to have participated in promoting the institution's intercollegiate athletics program. And they refer to a bylaw that tries to define who an affiliated party is. Gasnola, as an outside consultant for Adidas, 
was known by members of the institution's men's basketball staff to be a member of an agency or organization promoting the institution's intercollegiate athletics program and was known by a member of the institution men's basketball staff to be assisting in the recruitment of then prospective student athlete Smith. So that's going to be an important factual inquiry. And it's not clear from the facts how the NCAA is going to prove that up. So the other thing I, I want to mention is that in this notice of allegation, you get very little specific factual support for some of these broad allegations. So in that sense, it really does read like an indictment. In an indictment, the prosecution doesn't show all its evidence. They don't have to support all of these broad allegations with citations to specific evidence or testimony that they have already gotten or that they anticipate that they're going to get. They just lay out the broad allegations. And then the university comes in and, and responds, and they're likely to provide more specific information in response to these broad allegations. And then on the backside of that, the NCAA has the opportunity to reply. When I go through this process, you begin to see that the generality of these allegations serves a strategic purpose because the NCAA then gets to see what NC State has to say. And then the NCAA has the last uh, chance to, to speak. So the NCAA gets two bites at this apple. The institutions and the individuals get one. And you really don't begin to see until the NCAA's reply to the response to this notice of allegations, the specificity of the allegations, the source of the evidence, what they're relying on. And when we get to that, you're going to see that almost all these broad allegations that relate to this key $40,000 payment are taken from the criminal case, the, the Gatto case in the Southern District of New York, and some of the evidence that the NCAA relies on was never intended to be relied upon by the Commission on College Basketball, and certainly not used by the Committee on Infractions, and it wouldn't be admissible in any proceeding outside of the NCAA. And it's just shocking that the NCAA even tried to put that evidence in, but it's in. And now under this broad standard of reviewing the evidence that the NCAA snuck in August of 2018, this hearing panel can basically say we can consider circumstantial evidence. We're just going to take everything in and we'll just use our best judgment and just trust us. But given the stakes in this case, and this is such an important point, given the fact that this has really a criminal-like impact on the people that are involved and they will be branded as college sports criminals for life if they are found to have violated NCAA rules and the way that the institutional interests react to these Mickey Mouse allegations and then spend millions and millions of dollars and go on public relations campaigns and do all kinds of maneuvering to try to preserve the facade of amateurism, the stakes here are really high. And in a high stakes case like this, and again, the, the Commission on College Basketball said this explicitly and used the term high stakes in these high stakes cases because of the, in practice, the way that these cases are handled, the way that they're viewed and the financial consequences of these cases, there should be a built in layer of reliability in the evidence that is used to determine whether or not an institution is, is going to be deemed responsible for alleged violations. So from this allegation, all we know is that an NC State assistant coach may have been involved in receiving money from this Gasnola guy who may have a legal relationship with NC 
state. And then if that payment was made, we really don't know where it went, but we think that you could reasonably conclude that it went to Dennis Smith Jr.'s personal trainer and that it was then intended for Dennis Smith Jr. or his father. And this allegation on its face doesn't connect up the dots that show that the purpose of this money was to have any impact on Smith or his family. And the paper trail, the money trail stops with early. And there's no evidence that this money went to Sean Farmer than went to Dennis Smith Jr.'s father. And if you're sitting at a bar and you're thinking the way the NCAA thinks, you say, well, gosh, it must have happened with $40,000 and envelopes and hushed voices and all that. And then you're, you've bought into the NCAA fantasy world. But you could say, well, maybe, 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 but that's not how it works in the real world of justice. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Whether it is an administrative hearing by a voluntary association, a nonprofit association that's doing serious business, or a actual tribunal in a court or in an arbitration or other kind of dispute resolution process, this is nothing. This is nothing. And this is the basis for these institutions to press the panic button and go into full battle mode. And the meter starts running. As soon as that happens, the meter starts running and is running in so many different component parts of this whole process, this whole bureaucratic process that now has become so big that it has an interest in self-preservation, just like the NCAA national office. This whole compliance and enforcement and infractions process is an industry. And the wheels kick in. Everybody starts doing what they do in this process. The meter's running and the expenses are just piling up by the truckload. And all for what? All for what? Even if you assume everything in this notice of allegation to be true, it's assume that all of it's true. You buy all of the assumptions and the speculation and the unconnected dots. You just take the NCAA's word for it, that this is a serious breach of NCAA rules and regulations. How do you justify the response to it? How do you do that? And then you're back to this way of thinking that Taylor Branch was describing in his 2011 article and the thinking of the Knight Commission. And then that goes back to the early 20th century. And in the academy, you still have that influence uh, through this presidential leadership thing. And it's, it's a facade. It has nothing to do with reality. And these presidents are taking the money just as Sonny Vaccaro said they would. And it's doing it more so today. And the other thing about this whole charade that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I think it should, is that it's my belief that these scandals come and go and they're so predictable. And this kind of plays into the Dan Rasher theory that this whole infractions and enforcement process has some built-in guardrails that make it unlikely that a school's really going to be put out of business if they get caught violating NCAA rules. And this is just part of the cost of business here. And if they get caught, they deal with it, they deal with some penalties and then and they move along their merry way. And I think because of that, I think that's true. And I think because of that, most fans have already folded into their thinking about the enterprise, the assumption that that stuff happens and it has zero impact on consumer demand. And this gets back to some of the issues in the antitrust case. 
In that case, the NCAA and the Power Five were arguing that there was a consumer preference for amateurism and the integrity of college sports and all of the things that the NCAA propagandizes, like the collegiate model of the student-athlete. And there was zero evidence that that's the driving force in how people respond to the product. And it, it's more built around school affiliation or people who just like the level of competition. And actually, there's consumer demand for the prof most professional version of that product, which is why people pay ridiculous money to get a seat at an SEC football game. But a Division III uh, football game just down the road is played in front of an empty stadium. And, and people want, want the best, you know. So this notion that the thing that the system is preserving by this gross overreaction to these Mickey Mouse transactions is the integrity of college sports and the integrity of the institutions that may get caught cheating. It, it's just another false narrative among many false narratives. So, and I guess another thing. And I've talked about this in other episodes, but these absurdities are playing out in the context of higher education in a setting where institutions are committed to the honest pursuit of knowledge, the discovery of knowledge, the transmission of knowledge, and the open inquiry for the truth. That's a fundamental predicate that supports higher education, all of education, honestly. And yet, these same institutions are engaging in a fraudulent facade based on fairy tales that nobody cares about, but they continue to do it. And baked into that is some, I think, some pride and some ego and some elitism and some unstated hostility to the very existence of big-time college sports. But really, that's it with the notice of allegations. What I just read to you is really the fundamental core of what the NCAA is complaining about here. And there simply isn't much there there. We'll get into more detail in the next episode when I talk about the response that NC State filed. And they do talk in, in more detail about the evidence. And then I will look at the NCAA's reply to that response. And that's a fascinating document. And I'm going to pick that thing apart because it is just riddled with the bad stuff, including things that should never be allowed in a deliberative process that's based on integrity. They pull stuff from this trial that just, it doesn't even rise to the level of evidence. So you would, you would think that whatever they're using at least could be characterized as evidence, but they're pulling comments from the opening statements in the criminal case. And, you know, the, the judge issues an instruction at the end of every case. This is true in a criminal case or a civil case that what the lawyers say in their opening statements means nothing. It isn't evidence. It is speculation. And it is spoken before a single piece of evidence has been introduced in the case. Yet the NCAA is taking statements as evidence from the opening statements and trying to pawn it off as quote-unquote evidence in this NCAA investigation and in the NCAA prosecution. It's unconscionable on its face. If you have any familiarity with the legal system or with basic principles of due process, but under these rules that came in August of 2018, the NCAA thinks they can get away with this crap. And before the Austin decision and before the failed campaign in the Senate and before Mark Emmert screwed up the name, image, and likeness debate, they would have gotten away with this. I don't think they can do it now. And I talked about that in the last episode. But So I, that's going to be it on this notice of allegations. And then I'll wrap this thing up. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about the 
response at NC State Farm. So I want to thank you as always. It's an honor and a privilege to have you along, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.